Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we are in episode 26. I'm here with my guests, my co-host rather, of course. We have Pratik and Nick. How are you guys doing today? Are you feeling better, Nick? I missed you on the show, man. Oh, dude. I'm feeling great. Sorry to have missed last week, but I'm ready and I'm, I'm bringing it this week. So looking forward to starting. Great. Well, you know, today we have a bunch of topics to cover. First and foremost, we're going to be talking about our thoughts on the foreign policy debate and Biden taking action on Putin. Uh, For those who missed it this past uh, Wednesday or Thursday, I believe, we had posted a debate between me and Pratik on foreign policy and regime change. Uh, Pratik, you wanted to elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, so I had an error. So I said the most recent revolution that took place was in Czechoslovakia in 2006. But the most recent revolution, obviously, which I did discuss, was, was Egypt in 2010. And recently, they've been, there have been a lot of protests that have taken place, but many of them are quelled down, so they don't really lead to the extent of a revolution. But the most recent, recent um, protest that has led to a president signing off has been Kyrgyzstan. And that's like, you know, one of those countries you don't really think about. But Kyrgyzstan had a bunch of protests and their president stepped Kyrgyzstan, down. Kyrgyzstan, Pratik. Kyrgyzstan. I can't take the Kyrgyzstan, dude. I, I'm sorry. Can, please <laughs> yeah. continue. Sorry. But yeah, no. So Kyrgyzstan. And then there was also um, the most, like, you know, well-known recent rebellion type stuff that took place was in Turkey with Erodgan. How do you say it? Erodgan? Or is it Erodgan? <laughs> Erdogan. Oh my god, Erodgan, it's Erdogan. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Some of these names are really difficult to pronounce. I understand. My name's kind of No, I don't blame you. It's so yeah, but yeah, no, so it was I, I just wanted to make that clear. But overall, like there hasn't been many revolutions or rebellions that have really taken place. Apart from the Egypt one, most of the other revolutions and protests that take place get quelled down by their government if not by the military presence of those countries. And Iraq was another weird scenario where they had, after the Iraq war ended, they had a bunch of regime changes that took place internally. And now it's just a lot worse than it was whenever we left in 2000. When did we leave? 2011? 2010. Maybe earlier than that. I'm going to say 2009. But yeah, no. But once once the Iraq war ended, um, they had a lot of issues and Egypt had a lot of issues. But overall, there hasn't really been many revolutions or many regime changes that have taken place since 2010. So I just want to make that clear. Okay, cool. And, you know, I, I actually I actually just want to get Nick's, uh, just his general thoughts on regime change. Uh, he was sitting in on part of the episode. I'm sure he caught some of our conversation. So I just want to give you the chance because I know you weren't able to make it uh, this past uh, Oh, Wednesday. gosh. So you guys were focused on, as, as a quick recap, you guys are focused on... Um, whether or not the United States being a global superpower should be involved in a lot of these regime changes. We weren't so much talking about to to what degree exactly, exactly to what degree and where in the world. And especially with um, nations, cultures and peoples who we may not have had such a great relationship with in the past. Should we still be involved if it's in the name of democracy? And that's, Oh, God, dude, that's a tricky question. I think the biggest thing on my end, frankly, is I don't think Americans across the board want us to be involved in the in foreign wars and regime, regime change. So I know things are heating up a bit in Ukraine, Taiwan, between Iran and Israel. And while those are certainly three flashpoints that I think most Americans know about and are somewhat concerned about, um, probably mostly on the China side, 
um, it still sort of leaps out like we're we're not going to be committing troops or if we are people are going to be pretty reticent to get involved especially after 20 years of war in the middle east where we're going to be pulling out next year like the biden administration announced and for what what was our great success our great victory we're pulling our troops out and what did we accomplish nothing and i think that's actually a point i tried to make where if the american people don't have the will to do it how can you force them to do it? Yeah, but I think you know, historically so. that's how our country has operated a lot. And not to get too into the rabbit hole of uh, last week's conversation, but I mean, you can see back to Vietnam and even before then, America generally, when we commit ourselves to a conflict, we always try to arm, train, and otherwise provide funding to the local groups that we're backing. We're very reticent, very reluctant to commit American lives in any sort of conflict. And we've done this throughout our history over the past 100 years. So this idea isn't so new, but especially because, you know, I guess the successes of the 90s with some of the Desert Storm, Desert Shield operations, that was sort of a big victory lap, a big success. Um, but after that, um, the wars of the early 2000s did not go the way we wanted them to. And we've sort of drifted back to how we used to be. Um, you know, in the past 50 to 100 years. I think one, one major thing that we had to remember, though, is like what we were debating a little bit is that now more wars are cyber warfare related, and that's going to be like the future trend. And you're going to have many more drones and that kind of stuff with more targeted technologies to be, you know, targeted at certain individuals more than, you know, at an entire population. So the wars itself will change on how they've taken place. Like some of the wars that we see today where America is not really, really involved in, like the Yemen war, for example, like it's taking place with a lot of troops, but America is not really involved in that war. If America gets involved in a major war like that, just the fact that we have cyber warfare and we have certain, you know, technology in place that will be able to allow us to, you know, pre prevail in that war, it just intimidates the other opposition that isn't to the same level as we are. However, that's not the case in certain countries like Russia and China, but I don't really see us going to war with any of those countries just because those countries are really powerful. And we, you know, we could talk about this for a while. Nick, if you do have a last comment, I'll, I'll give it to you. But we did discuss this pretty at length. No, totally. I was just <laughs> going to say, week, so. critique was proving my point. Yeah. Yes, you're correct. We did not commit U.S. troops to the ground in full force in Yemen. However, a lot of the bombs, drones, and other targeting strikes that did occur were manufactured, made in the United States, and supplied to the Saudis. Okay, and with that, we'll move on straight on to Nick. Th uh, well, let's just our general thoughts on Putin moving troops to the border of Ukraine uh, into Crimea. I believe this is a big move. I, be I believe it's around a hundred thousand troops. Some some people were worried about potential nuclear missiles being uh, moved to the border, and that just uh, signals a big threat. Is Russia going to move into Ukraine? Is this something that we're going to see in the near future? Or is it just some kind of uh, strong-arming intimidation tactic? Oh, gosh, you're asking me? Dude, if, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be crowned like Supreme Chancellor of the United NATO Forces. I mean, I would all instantly be mm. bolted up if I knew the answer to that. But, I mean, the, the Ukraine question is pretty tricky. I believe they were made an independent state, given independence in, in quotes, I forget if it was Stalin or one of um, his successors later on. I believe it was in 1954. Pratik, feel free to check me on that. I could be wrong. But um, Ukraine, you know, they have their own identity. They have their own culture. But, you know, through the USSR, I mean, they had a lot of warheads stockpiled in Ukraine. 
that was one of the border areas. And now it's like, okay, Ukraine, they're one of the few countries that gave up their nuclear weapons arsenal. They give it up, they're promised protection, and then with everything that's going on in Crimea, I think, you know, one of the other things, maybe the parallel with Iran is if we're going to talk about denuclearization and trusting that, you know, your allies are going to back you up when shit hits the fan. I think Ukraine is case in point for still being a little reluctant to fully trust the people who say are going to, you know, go to bat for you. And I think, I mean, if you're looking historically at the whole thing, I mean, Ukraine is, it's this big plane. When Germany, and by plane, I mean like very flat land. Um, when Germany invaded, they went through Ukraine, you know, obviously Poland and then Ukraine and then Russia. But Ukraine was sort of like a staging ground, very flat land, very exactly. It's a buffer zone and very easy to get through that state. And there's mountains in sort of um, southwestern Ukraine, the Carpathian Mountains. Actually, no, those might be a little bit Poland, Transnistria, Moldova. I could be a little bit off on that. But in any case, Ukraine is basically like a beltway into Russia. Like if you're going to go invade Russia, the past like 300, 400 years, like think Napoleon, like that was done through Ukraine. So that's number one. Number two, obviously, Russia has had issues. Like if you look in northern Russia geographically, it's all bordering the Arctic. Those ports are frozen for most of the year. So they one of the main strategic factors at play with Ukraine right now is why did they invade? And part of it is having a warm water port. Um, to you know, conduct their military operations. They currently do not have one that is free for the entire year, and this is a huge strategic area for them. And frankly, I don't know if it's going to get to that flashpoint where NATO actually comes in and does something. I mean, certainly there's been more progressive posturing, um, especially in the last week, like you were mentioning, with Putin committing more troops and then us ramping up in response. But whether or not it's become a, going to become a hot war, I, I highly doubt that. I mean, maybe Ukraine has leverage over squeezing the water supply to the area that's been annexed. But apart from that, um, I that's sort of my initial take is historically, this has been an area that the Russians are very nervous about. It is a tract of land that has been used to invade the country for hundreds of years. And while that's not an excuse for an aggressive incursion and invasion and annexation, it still is sort of a flashpoint where one, you got the warm water port, two, it's a big agricultural hub. And three, a lot of you know people during the USSR, it's World One people, whatever. There are a lot of ethnic Russians in the area where it's a little blurry the lines between who is Ukrainian, who's Russian, and which side you pick. So I wanted to add a few um, historical details to this. So originally, um, in the 1920s, whenever the Russian Revolution took place, the Russian Red Army and the Polish Army took over Ukraine. And then eventually Ukraine um, merged into the USSR whenever the USSR became the, you know, the big behemoth that it was. And since then, it was part of basically Russia, you can say. And then in the 1990s, when the breakup took place of the USSR, Ukraine and Russia separated. But basically, since the 1920s, Ukraine and Russia were literally part of the same group of countries and there was also times whenever ukraine was basically under the um what is it supervision of the russians as since catherine the great in the 1600s so they've um or 1700s so they've basically had majority of the control of ukraine over the past like you know many many years and you know since the 90s ukraine became a sovereign nation 
And Russia was able to get over being um, not having control over some of the other countries that are in the East Asia and, um, you know, Eastern European area. But overall, this was one of those few countries that Russia and Ukraine have never really been able to separate because Putin has always wanted to have more control over the region. Overall, Ukraine is a very tough situation. Uh, a point that Nick alluded to in the previous conversations was that like some of these people might be missing the Soviet Union and what that provided, that comfort it provided. Are we so sure that the Ukrainians wouldn't want to be part of that? That's what scares me, because if the Ukrainians themselves wouldn't mind being part of Russia, maybe, maybe think, that gives Putin a reason to want to move in. I think the problem in. is that we're so far separated from when the USSR broke up. So a lot of those countries and those regions don't remember how it was to live under the USSR. And most of the people in the USSR that lived in, the, in that time period hated the USSR. But that was their way of life and they didn't really have a choice. However, in terms of the military context and how powerful USSR was, they were, one of the mo they were the second most powerful country. And at one point were more powerful than the United States. So, I mean, it's one of those that like people don't remember how it was to live under that regime. So that impacts what people think about it. And they see somebody like Putin as like the strong arm guy that's going to take them back to their glory days. But it's not necessarily the case because we don't know how it would be if Putin was to take over all take over all these countries. It might even be better than USSR. I don't know. But overall, I think the problem is that we're so far separated that a lot of these people don't really remember what it was like, like, you know, 30, 40 years ago, whenever the USSR was in place. And it's not really that long ago either. Yeah, it's not long ago. And I think Pratik brings up an excellent point, which is that, you know, there's been 30 years for people to grow up under a new Ukrainian identity and nationality. And none of those people grew up during an era when the USSR was intact. So I, I have a feeling, strong feeling, especially in the Western part of the country, which, you know, closer geographically to Poland and NATO and the rest of it. Um, I, I feel like there's this, you know, Ukrainian identity that's frankly, always, sure, surely always been there in terms of the culture, but um, has definitely gotten a little bit more nationalistic, especially in response to uh, the situation in Crimea. So good point, Pratik. And it, it brings us back to the regime change conversation, right? Because it's like, do we now come and protect them because they want to keep their nationalistic identity? Because if we do that, we're going to be facing the brunt of Russia and potentially facing another world war. Yeah, Tyler's all about this world war theory. I don't know if we're going to have a world war, but I can. Uh, so let me let's discuss what's going on right now. So apparently my biggest issue has always been with foreign policy since like the 90s in terms of how much I've learned from history is that the United States really sucks at taking action. They just like to say a bunch of stuff. They like to, you know, act like they're going to do something and it's going to be big. But and since Bush Sr., they haven't really done much because they're just they've become more relaxed and more isolationist over time. However, Biden is taking action. So this is a good sign with everything that Putin's doing with him putting um, troops on the border and all that. So Biden says he's ready to take further actions. If Russia escalates against U.S., opens door to cooperation. So President Biden addressed the sweeping sanctions, which he said he's going to he's going to implement several sanctions on 32 Russian individuals and entities for their roles in influencing and attempting to you know, rig the 2020 presidential elections. So they bring all that back. And then they also are going to throw sanctions on Russia because they believe that they're interfering with the Ukrainian democracy. So 
both of those reasons, whether whether it's the United States and how we get impacted or with Ukraine, President Biden is going to take a stand. We're not going to go into some type of military action or anything, but we're going to throw sanctions on them, which I don't really see how it's much different from what we've already been doing. However, Biden has thrown additional sanctions on, you know, them allegedly poisoning and having in putting Alexei Navalny in a detention center. And then this is only going to add to our problems with our foreign relations within the two countries. Well, as far as rhetoric goes, Biden's certainly been stronger in Russia. But as far as purely based on action, we've been sanctioning them yeah. for the past four years anyway. There's nothing really different. So it's not much different. Yeah, it, it, but it's all perception at the end of the day. I feel like if Trump was there, like Trump's problem was that apparently he became all buddy-buddy with Russia. But if Trump was to take a stand, he would have taken a much far, you know, harsher stance, which could have had a lot more of a dire impact in the long run. But the problem with Biden is Biden's like a status quo politician. So he's going to say a bunch of stuff. And then whenever it comes to push and shove, he's going to lay back on some of his comments to make sure that we keep peace in the world and peace between the United States and Russia. But I don't really know if there's the right answer. Like we were debating with the regime change thing. Somebody like me would be more gung-ho on taking action against Russia. And somebody like Tyler would not be as gung-ho. And both sides have valid arguments. Because you can't just allow this guy to just take over countries because he feels like it. But at the same time, the cost of of allowing that, if not allowing him, could be much more worse towards our citizens of the country. So it's not like there's a right answer to any of this. Yeah. As a small side, did you see that the uh, the Chinese uh, trademarked the South China Sea? Like they just got a trademark for it. I guess it's theirs now. I guess. <laughs> what that's do you how mean? The like there's geopolitics a geopolitics. What do you mean? Nowadays? There's like a copyright little you know symbol next to it whenever you see it. Like there's an island just that, that's a copyright symbol now. No, I don't. I, I'm not exactly sure, but apparently they tried to trademark it. I also heard that the U.S. and maybe Taiwan as well had some uh, sent some ships over there, and we were able to back off the Chinese a little bit. So it seems like things are starting to heat up around both China and on the Russian side. Yeah, you know, people have been saying we're going to go to war in the South China Sea for the past... It's been a long time. I don't even know how many years. Yeah, it's been a long time. And there's always this ebb and flow of tensions heating up, cooling off, heating up, cooling off. So, look, I don't think that's going to happen in the next couple of years. But we're definitely getting to a point where the U.S. just globally has diminished influence and diminished status. And the Chinese are really trying to cement themselves as having, you know, a very playing a leading role in the world. So I'm sure even if we don't get into a hot war, there's going to be more and more conflict between our two countries. And unfortunately, proxies, well, the whole Taiwan issue, that's um, with Formosa, that's an entirely different thing with uh, Chinese national identity. But um, at least getting to other parts of the world, um, you're definitely going to see more of a, I don't know, is it is it all economic now? Or are we going back to the good old traditional military standoffs? It's always economic, dude. <laughs> It's always economic. except I guess I guess with my argument that I made in the last like, you know, foreign policy debate, Kissinger did specifically say that he didn't really care much about the economics of the region. He was just trying to make sure that Russia didn't become bigger or the USSR didn't become bigger by gulping in China. So like that was the reason why China is where it is today. But nowadays, because we're not into like some Cold War situation, which I feel like would be the next type of war we get into. 
like because we're not really in a cold war with China unless that I mean we get into that kind of situation where the tensions do rile up to a, even more of an extent we're not, it's going to be it's going to continue to be the same where we're basically just competing with them for economic resources and trying to outmaneuver them and you know making sure that there's more countries that are on our side well speaking of countries around the world that could be on our side let's talk about vaccines, Russia's influence, the the Western influence over vaccine distribution, and what countries are turning to as we see a rise in the number of cases in third world countries. Yeah, so currently, um, we have a huge problem on our hands where 40% of the COVID-19 vaccines have been administered and are mainly going towards people in 27 wealthy countries that account for just 11% of the world population. 843 million vaccines have been administered in the in uh, 155 countries. Um, overall, we've seen 3 million people die from this pandemic altogether. But now the focus has been going towards Russia, China, and India. So China, I mean, obviously, we don't really know what the real numbers are because they tend to distort their own information. But Russia and India were the first two people to first two countries to come up with a vaccine. And both of their vaccines were not really effective. And there have seen a lot more cases and deaths in the past three, four months than they did for the entirety of 2020. Because more people started to go out and it was more like, you know, a normalized situation. However, a lot of their vaccines didn't work. So we don't really have this kind of situation because our vaccines with Pfizer, Moderna, J&J are much more, you know, they've gone through more testing because the FDA is really regulatory and a lot of this stuff. But some of those countries, their vaccines weren't as great as it could be. And they're seeing a majority of the new death trends of the COVID cases. So the United States, many of the Western world has gone down in case count. Brazil, ironically, has gone up a lot too. They are running around 3,000 cases per day. Or deaths How is are that running 3,000 per day. How but is that ironic, dude? The because, president's because, like, oh, this is yeah, a real no, I, I, I wouldn't say that's no, ironic. I would expect I Brazil. In terms of South America, <laughs> Brazil is the most powerful country in that region. And they're the most economically developed. I would say Argentina and Brazil are the most economically developed in South America. I might be wrong. There might be there might be statistics that say it's like Chile or Colombia I feel like that's almost part of the problem. Overall, they have, these, they have yeah. huge cities, dude. They have huge yeah. cities with ha- people then, on top so of each I, other. So it just makes it so much worse. This is one of those I've actually thought about opinion. a lot. So, you know, obviously from the business side, we're having all these issues because we're not able to get as many workers because there's been so much of the pandemic problems and unemployment checks that have been provided to people. So they're able to make more money sitting at home than they would be able to make if they work. But some of the weird things that I was really thinking about is that the people that are usually in poverty. So I've seen how people, whenever they come stay at a hotel that are in the lower income bracket, how they behave. So some of those things is they tend to eat snack foods even that are much more fattier and oilier and less healthy. While somebody that's more of an upper echelon type income level would go eat something like a granola bar from like, you know, our pantry. So what I've noticed is that I think some of the big issues is that the people that are in poverty in general and all across the world, including the U.S., tend to have less healthy immune systems because they tend to eat less healthy foods and that impacts how they are able to, you know, like that impacts their systems altogether. And they tend to have 
a harder time, you know, push fighting against certain, you know, diseases from catching them. Like some of us, because we eat healthier and we have healthier lifestyles, that automatically reduces the amount of chances that we have for getting the getting a disease over somebody that's less healthy. So I think that's some of the benefits that have come from wealthier countries in general. Some countries like India, which has had all these recent cases, like what was the statistic I said? They have um they have around two hundred thousand people that have died over the past like two three months in India. Some of the reasons for that is they don't really have welfare programs in a lot of these countries. Like Brazil, they're famous for their favelas where they just have a bunch of poor people living on top of one another and same similar situations with India and I've seen this kind of trend where the countries that are you know developing but are third world countries that have a higher level of populations tend to be the biggest people that get hurt the most because they're starting to open up their economies but their vaccines are not as powerful and their people are in the people that are in poverty or don't have as many as much of a healthy lifestyle and they're not getting given any provisions or any help more so than we would in certain countries like the United States. I think that's true. But even in the United States, it's both a knowledge issue and an access issue. So if I can go buy a two ounce, oh, a big thing of soda, and it's only cost me a dollar. But if I want to get a jug of water, it's like three, three dollars. It's like, why would I get the water? I'm going to get the soda. Same thing with snack food and junk food. So I and I understand economically why they make those decisions. It's just one of those things that comes with wealth. It's one of the benefits of being a wealthy nation, even if it not everyone's able to get yeah, that advantage to the full. Yeah, I think it's expensive to be poor. I think there are a lot of things where long term it's like I'm not saying that people who are on the lower end of the income spectrum can't plan far in advance and what have you. That's just not true. But the reality is, is that when you're looking at comparable products and living paycheck to paycheck, um, some of the choices between buying healthy food and buying food that isn't as healthy, but it may be cheaper, it may be more filling, um, that that sort of stuff. I think it's it's really difficult, and especially because, um, oh gosh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but if you look at just access to healthy food, um, food deserts are a huge issue in a lot of urban areas where, frankly, the higher the higher end grocery stores like a Whole Foods. They want to place their stores in a place where they know that their customers are going to be willing to pay a premium price for their goods. And a lot of the times they do not locate those stores in low income communities. And so it's like, how do you get healthy food in low income communities? And that's actually a huge issue. Um, it's called food deserts in case anyone wants to look it up. And it's something that's being worked on. Uh, Tyler, I know we mentioned uh, Louis uh, Farrakhan and some of his anti-Semitic remarks in a previous episode. but. Um, that's actually a passion project of his, um, you know, there's always uh, good and bad to people, but I mean, if it's not economically viable for Whole Foods to go there, are we just supposed to subsidize them to show up in those areas? Like what, what do we do about that? Well, I think what you do about it is you want to encourage competitors and this gets to the farm bill, which I know Pratik loves talking about. This gets to a lot of other changes where dude, we subsidize so many different types of foods. Like the meat industry is completely subsidized out the wazoo. And I think if we just try to shift things a little bit more, I, it, oh my God, we have so many issues with food, antibiotic use. Like you look up like where are the superbugs? It's right around all these factory farms. And I think in terms of both disease, in terms of your cardiovascular health and like what foods, well, obviously you should end up exercising. I'm not saying you shouldn't exercise, but and eating healthier foods can make a huge difference in the quality of your life. 
and will actually end up driving down your healthcare costs and your risks of getting diseases that, frankly, will make you even more broke. But like I, I said, it's hard to think so long term when you're living paycheck to paycheck. I can't think about how healthy I'm going to be in 20 years when I need to, to eat something tonight. So it's ramen or bust, right? So, man, it's a tough situation. See, like you said, there's a lot of problems, a lot of factors leading it to it, though. It's not any single issue. I yeah, think one of the one of the main things is that so we kind of went on a weird topic. So this is my fault where I started talking about healthcare and health, you know, like how people's health is. But whatever situations that we have in the United States, like our poor people are much more healthier and have much more of a better lifestyle than some of these other people that are in other countries that are living generally in a worse type of environment than we do in the United States. I just think that that's one of those things that we really have to remember. So like it's really hard to even compare the United States poverty situation to certain countries like India and Brazil, where these people have experienced generations of poverty and their situation situations are like to such an extent where they can't have basic resources and necessities given to them the united states however we are our welfare system does allow certain provisions to be given to certain people to help them out that are that are making a lot less money than you know the regular average income people but it's much worse in certain countries where they don't even have a welfare system so i actually have a data point that can pretty hit this home well it's if you make around $30,000, maybe $35,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the world, moneymakers in the whole whole world. And that's considered near the poverty line in America. So that's just a quick reference for anyone yeah. who's thinking about it. Yeah. And Pratik, since I can never agree with you, there is intergenerational poverty in the United States too. But again, as I'm Tyler not mentioned, saying there it's, a very, but... it's a very different picture. And yeah. I will well, say Brazil, I'm not sure about India, um, but Brazil definitely has social safety net programs. And in fact historically their country has been pretty big on expanding social services so i i know the standards of living aren't the same but i just wanted to say that brazil does have a safety net it's just not i'm just i'm just saying in general i'm just saying like third world countries in general like obviously the most populations are in those certain countries like brazil and india and china and russia but I'm talking. Are about, we considering like, China third world? Like, what are we, are we still they, calling technically, that? They're having this, such a this big is actually problem a debate with COVID right now. This is a big debate, actually, where they have people. So the economic side of people, they see China as like you know the second most powerful country in the world. Human rights type people see China at the bottom of the totem pole. Civil rights, obviously, same thing. But then in terms of like equity distribution, you know, like things like that, China's at the bottom of everything. So like it depends on how you look at it. China has certain numbers in place because they have more people that they have certain resources that are given to them more than some country like Zimbabwe, for example. But overall, this has been one of those like, you know, intense debates where it's like technically military power wise economic power wise political power wise china is like at the top but in all of these other situations like health care provisions di- distribution of wealth that kind of stuff china's at the bottom of the totem pole so it depends on how you're looking at you know what is the I third would say world india's, country india's right around there india's in the same as category. far as, as far as income inequality that's Yeah, India's in the same category. If you're in India, so like this is my, you know, like my personal beliefs about this stuff. In India, they have all kinds of issues. The main issue that they have is that if you are whatever, whatever, like if your family has been, you know, uh, janitors, 
They're, your family is always going to be janitors because their system is made yeah. in a certain no way. No social mobility. Where there's no social mobility. You're kind of stuck at wherever your situation you're at. So, like, if my family comes from a wealthier background in India, I'm able to go immigrate to some country like America where I can make my life better than it would be in India. But if I was to live in India, my life would always be better and would be averagely stable than people that are at the below the poverty class in India, just because their system's made that way and there's too many people. The fact that there's way too many people in India is the biggest problem that they have in the country. And some of the other issues are like, you know, people can't drink water water in India because they have to have bottled water because the water has too many like you know chemicals and pollutants in there they have they have problems with like you know their religion situation where they have like a normed caste system in place where the people that are at the top will always remain at the top and the people at the bottom will always remain at the bottom so this is one of those things is just too much stuff is ingrained in the system however we feel about America America has so many flaws but overall like America allows there to be some level of social mobility that is not existent in many parts of the world that have similar populations to the United States. Well said. And with that, we can move on to our next topic, a topic we've been actually trying to get to for quite a while now. Uh, Georgia voting laws. Are they racist? The new provisions introduced by Republicans. Uh, Nick, your thoughts on this? Okay, so before we get into the voting laws, just so that people get an idea of what is going on, Pratik, I know you have some excellent summaries of what the recent controversies have been. Specifically, there was a BBC article published that was sort of walking through, hey, line by line, what is going on in Georgia? I have a few um, points that I'd like to pick at, but... Pratik, you're you're the uh, master of ceremonies here. I know you do a great job introducing okay, the so, topics. Okay, um, so take it away. Let the me floor find a US to, USA Today article first, and then I'll talk about the BBC. BBC was a little bit more vague, but these are the these are, this was the provisions that would exactly happen with the Georgia voting law. Um, special ballots will be created for nonpartisan elections. Ballots must be printed in black and white ink, ink on security paper. A cutoff date of 11 days before a primary, general election, or runoff election for mail-in ballot applications. A deadline for the issuance of absentee ballots at least 25 days before a federal primary, general election, or special election or 22 days before a municipal general election or primary, and you have to have a license, an ID card number, date of birth, and your last four digits of a social security number um, printed on the, out, on the absentee ballot before submitting it for voting. So they have had all kinds of issues with this specific law. Um, there are Democrats that believe that this is like leading back to the Jim Crow era law type stuff where they were trying to restrict black people from being able to vote. Um, the Republicans are trying to argue that they're trying to put more security in voting. Um, there are certain issues that will come from when voting times take place. There will be fewer, fewer, fewer ballot boxes. They'll um, send back votes if they're not done properly. And there's all kinds of all kinds of stuff like that where they feel like it's only going to restrict the amount of people that are able to vote in Georgia. So it's been called very racist throughout the country. Many many celebrities like Will Smith have even talked against the Georgia voting law, and he's not really a political celebrity. He just says a few things every now and then. 
So it's been one of those things where it's hyped up the whole country because a lot of people see the see the new law as very racist. And Joe, Joe Biden in particular hasn't really made any strong comments arguing that it's racist. So they're not sure what his viewpoint is on the whole topic. But because like he's like hasn't really been very anti or against the Georgia voting law. So Georgia voting law is like probably going to pass is probably going to stay. Kemp is the governor of Georgia. Georgia is a primarily a Republican controlled House and Senate. As I said, the only thing is that they voted Biden as president because of the whole Georgia situation that happened in 2020. So I don't know. I, I don't really have an opinion on this. So what are y'all's thoughts? All right. So first of all, Pratik, you say that Biden hasn't taken any sort of stance. That's just not true. So Biden, Biden is one of the people who said this is like 21st century Jim Crow. We're regressing. We're going back in time. I, I added the last part of that. But the Jim Crow comment that was straight from Biden. Oh, I didn't mean I didn't mean not take a stance. Sorry, oh, okay. I meant he hasn't like, you know, tried to pass any oh, legislation okay. or tried to, you know, create some kind of, you know, bill or some kind of provision that's trying to shut down the Georgia I, voting law. Sorry no, no for worries. my, you know, no, misstatement. No, not at all. Um, the, I believe the House is actually trying to pass a bill. I forget if it's um, already gone over to the Senate or if it's still still being voted on currently. But I know they're sort of trying to get involved. And that's what the Heritage Foundation and some other um, conservative foundations have been pointing out is, hey, this could be an example of federal overreach. Um, you're bashing this as being anti-democratic and restricting voting. Meanwhile, wouldn't the federal government meddling in a state law be the definition of meddling in voting access and anti-democratic? Because this was made by the people who were elected in Georgia. And so shouldn't their democratic voice stand. And one of the other things is you mentioned Kemp and I got to say you can you have to be a little sympathetic in terms of the absentee ballot situation. A lot of people now I feel like are taking it for granted that, you know, Georgia just has all this infrastructure in place and you're taking things away and it's this was a very special case that was just because of COVID. I mean, Governor Kemp gave a news conference where he said they saw a 350% increase in absentee ballots received. And before this election, they didn't have the infrastructure to support that. Now, you could say, well, shouldn't they have that going forward if more people are going to vote absentee, especially working people where you have to be on the job, clock in, clock out, nine to five, which, by the way, that's always been the case in Georgia. Previously, the state law said you can operate elections, you know, during normal, it shall be held during normal business hours. And they just specified that and said nine to five. So that change, it's not really an outrage because that's how it initially was. And across the country, you can set it from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., which Georgia still offers, um, especially on Saturdays and Sundays, in which case, actually, they've sort of expanded it on one of the Saturdays. But again, another part of this, I suppose, is the and feel free, either of you feel free to jump in here. But I think another part is the um, corporate interest in this. And sort of having all these big brands, mm. Apple, you know, Boston Consulting Group, all these big companies coming in and saying, "What is Boston Consulting Group?" Oh, they're um, they're a consulting firm. They're one of the biggest in the world, and or one of the most prestigious oh, okay. in the world. And you know, there's a bunch of other companies that are involved in this too. Sorry, I don't know why I picked on BCG, but um, it, they put penned a letter, a hundred of them, in the Washington Post and the New York Times too, I believe, where they said. 
you know, we stand in favor of democracy. This is an anti-democratic bill and we're not having it. Georgia, you better get your stuff together because us as companies, we're not looking at you in a positive light. I wanted to I wanted to add something to this um, before you start, Tyler. I, I just wanted to. So there are certain things in there that people assume and it's not necessarily true. But one of the main things is that Sunday voting is especially important for black worshipers in Georgia. And that has been one of the big issues that have come out with the early voting being cast on Sunday is they feel that it would be restrictive toward religious rights. I have my issues with that because I think overall it's better to have it on a Sunday because more people can go. But that has been a major issue. And um, apparently they have this water crisis, which Nick can tell us more about, where they're trying to restrict the amount of people giving water to voters if they've been standing in a line for a long time because they feel like they're trying they can potentially win um you know their side and potentially looks looked at as a gift if you're you know giving people water if you're from one party or another party and the people that are at the ballots and then they have some last thing where yeah you talked about the voting hours but that's part of it and that there won't really be any fewer voting um you know drop boxes drop boxes but it varies between counties so some counties will have more drop boxes than other drop boxes but that was already in place before so yeah no tyler feel free well i was just gonna say outright outright we've discussed it before but like how much would a national voting day just help all of us i mean it just seems so simple we wouldn't be restricting people. Everyone has the opportunity to go vote. And maybe these conversations would have to be have had as often as they are. As far as Georgia goes and the company's writing a letter about it, it seems like I, I'm sure some of them actually care. But it's largely a vir- virtue signal because I bet if you were to look at every state's voting laws, you're going to find other states similar to Georgia. It's just that it's in the news now and there's an outrage and they're trying to pick up on that outrage. They want to say they're on the right side of American politics at this point, trying, trying to catch that wave. Companies act in their own self-interest. If they see it as an ec- economically valuable to support this because the people that buy their items or are their clients use or support these views, yeah, I get why they did it. It, do- it just doesn't mean much to me. I <laughs> what are your thoughts on the water but, situation, Nick? Um, so, Pratik, for the water stuff, frankly, I don't think it's a big deal. I know a lot of people are saying this is racist, this is discriminatory, but plenty of states have laws, and, of course, other states having laws doesn't mean that it's not racist or discriminatory, but I think it's common sense that if you are, this one says if you're within 150 feet of a place that you're actually going to go vote, that you're not allowed to receive these things. If you're standing way back in line or approaching the place, people can still hand out their pamphlets, they can still hand you some water, they can hand you some food if they're you know organizing and doing a voting drive to get people out. They can still do all that, it just can't be within a certain distance from the actual ballot box where you're making your vote. And the idea there makes a lot of sense. You don't want to try to solicit voters and offer them all these things right next to the place they're going to vote. We've had these laws for a long time for good reason. And it has nothing to do with race, class, ethnicity, anything like that. It's purely to prevent candidates from getting in people's faces. Facebook, up until about two years ago, you could you could target basically the county level and target voters at voter registra- voter registration sites and at, at polls, Jesus. places where they're going to vote. You could literally target exactly those individuals. Now you have to have like a three to five mile radius, but that doesn't mean you're not able to advertise to these people. Hey man, Trump won, so they had to make laws change. They were like, yo, Trump won because he used all these facilities that were available to everybody. Now that he figured it out, anybody can figure it out. So let's like shut that down. 
I mean, look, I agree with what you said earlier, Tyler, about the companies. I mean, U.S. companies have been doing this for a long time, as have global companies. Um, speaking of tech companies particularly, there was Yahoo and Apple in the early 2000s, and they did this in the 90s as well. Um, but for example, Yahoo, just to harp on them, because, you know, what, what staying power do they have? Okay, maybe they have Yahoo Finance, but, you know, no one's using Yahoo emails as much as they used to back in the day. Um, but, My dad uses Yahoo email. Oh, God, dude, don't dox him. <laughs> don't do it. Um, but so what ended up happening, one of the things with Yahoo is, you know, how sincere are these companies being? Because of a lot of the time, um, what specifically what happened with Yahoo was they shared the information of a Chinese pro-democracy dissident and turned it over to the Chinese communist authorities, and they tracked him down and arrested him based on the information that Yahoo provided. Same thing with Google, where censoring their search engine based on what the Chinese government wants. And yet when it comes to time for the U.S. government to say, hey, we understand there's a lot of child porn going on. Can you send over the information you have on people who are trading and soliciting child pornography? Google says, no, that's a privacy issue. That's We can't do that to our users. And it's purely because of the money and the customer trust base. One, they want the Communist Party to trust them over in China so they get access to those users. And two, in the United States, completely different set of values. And they're doing the same thing, but in terms of pro-privacy and sort of flipping, flip-flopping. And again, I just agree with what Tyler said a lot. I wanted to provide a quick example to say a lot of the times these companies are making these statements because it is in their financial interest to do so. And that's the only reason. Yeah. And just to close on the Georgia thing, um, if with any guys, any last thoughts you guys have, I mean, for me, I think that I haven't read the entire context of the bill. I looked at a few sections and the sections that stood out to me, one was the fact that the state Republican legislature can come in and if, if there's, granted, there's what, like 150 counties in Georgia or something? There are a lot of counties. But in any case, they can basically take over three of those counties and so appoint someone that they like to go run the county if they deem that the county is not running their elections uh, the way they should. And a lot of that is driving from, I mean, look, how would they not put this law on the books? Why are people surprised? Trump was talking about the election, integrity, security. And if you're trying to restore any sense of faith, then yeah, you try to get some more stringent laws passed. And it probably wasn't messaged the right way. But the heart of this bill is sort of getting at, if we're getting, like Governor Kemp said, 350% increase in the amount of absentee ballots, and we expect there to be somewhat similar numbers going forward, um, maybe not to that high extent, but still, you know, an increase um, compared to 2016 and previous years. How do we safely or how do we securely do that? And how do we verify that the information coming in is accurate? And I'm not here to spread doubt about the election, but um, it just makes a lot of sense that if that was the main narrative was there are issues with election security, potentially, it's not surprising that states like Georgia have passed these laws to say, yeah, let's take a closer look at this. If they were going into black communities and saying, hey, these ballot boxes that you have, we're going to take those away and put them somewhere else. That would be discriminatory. I'm but this law is boat. not doing I don't really know how much different it would be if Democrats tried to create a voting law to be, you know, like in place. Some of these things, they're just trying to make a muck about for no reason. Like the Sunday thing, they're all like, oh, it's discriminating against Christian people because they worship on Sundays. But it's like, that's, 
like it's just one of those things it's like it's like what do you what do you want well how how would you solve this problem there isn't really a solution they proposed hr1 which was like 10 times worse like you know remember that we talked about this bill the house bill the first bill that the democrats came out with what they were doing with the no no not hb1 not not hb2 in north carolina i'm talking about the first you know federal bill that came out by the house where we discussed that all these different provisions including the um, what is it? The code of conduct with the Supreme Court. Remember that bill? They had all kinds of voting provisions in place that what they wanted to accomplish. And they had like certain laws that like you had to you couldn't allow people to drive you to the ballot and things like that. Like there was all kinds of issues. And like there is not, none of those things are practical. Like but that was the Democrat version. The Democrat version had similar things to what the Georgia voting law is passing. I'm not saying that neither there's not racism that can happen from how voting takes place. And frankly, the voting system has been kind of garbage for the past like eight years because no one's really sure if voting is done properly and they they've gone through all kinds of scenarios and the russians rigged it and all this other stuff so like there's all kinds of other problems but it's like i don't really see anything bad per se from the kemp bill but i feel like if you wanted to go out and try to find some kind of problem with every single voting law that comes out you'll be able to and with that, we'll move on to our final topic, the Derek Chauvin trial, super controversial trial going on right now. So Pratik, kick us off. Yeah, so obviously y'all know about Derek Chauvin. Um, I really don't know how to pronounce his name. Do you know how to pronounce his name, I, Nick? Is it Chauvin <laughs> or is it Chauvin? Um, what Tyler is saying. Chauvin? Pratik, I'm not trying okay. to harp on you but for yeah, your no, pronunciation, Cho- uh, I swear. This guy is- it was just Kyrgyzstan. That was it. And Erdogan. <laughs> okay but yeah no so this guy has been responsible for all the major riots that have taken place um because of him kneeling down on george floyd's neck and this has been probably the one of the biggest storylines of 2020 altogether black lives matters protests that took place throughout the globe happened because of chauvin and he's responsible for literally everything that took place. He's like the face of racism in the country, probably. Um, he's the face of police brutality because he's the first person that comes to everybody's mind. And at the moment, what is taking place in this trial is that they're trying to make an argument that um, the the Chauvin side is trying to say that he had his hand in his pocket, which is definitely not true because his hand was in the uh, was over the neck of um, George Floyd for a long period of time, and there also the from the court hearings they found that you know he had some other problems that didn't have anything to do with Chauvin himself that led to him dying, but. As I said, my my thinking is, in the end of the day, this guy is the reason why all these things happen. He's the reason why businesses were burned to, gr- to the ground. He's the reason why there's so much more race relation problems in the country. And this guy is the reason why half the people in the country don't believe in the police anymore. So, so I, I actually, just feel like it's one. he's one of those storylines. I, I agree with you, but I almost feel like it was just the tipping point. I don't think he caused all of it. I just think the next, um, like the next unjust killing, was bound to cause, like, bound to stir up controversy because it had been brewing for so long. Specifically with the trial, though, it's so unfortunate how it's gone because we find out that George Floyd was actually taking speedball. He was in the car with his drug dealer, who may or may not have given the speedball. It couldn't testify because he may have been put up for murder charges if he had. 
Um, the fact that he had his arteries were all clogged up and there could have been other ways he had died instead of having his airways like uh, nailed down. He said, I can't breathe before he hit the ground. So there's so many things that make it murky. But overall, it would be so bad for our nation not to give this guy some kind of punishment. And that it's so sad to say because you want to see the justice system do its work and get the best outcome. But I'm, I guess I'm less optimistic than I should be at this point. He had a heart condition and a bipolar disorder. Those are the two factors. Yeah, Nick, what's your thought? And I, I also heard he was actually taking benzos or some kind of like uh, some other drug and was given speedball by accident. Like it was it was a very weird situation. Oh, God, dude. So obviously this is a very sensitive topic. Um, I I haven't been looking at the recent information like you just mentioned. So that's on me for being underinformed. But initially when you have, well, let's call it murder, um, when you have someone murdered and there's not a clear reason why that happened. And, you know, we could get into the whole fact of cops aren't properly trained to be, you know, both crisis management, healthcare providers, um, dealing with underlying psychological issues, just like the big burden, frankly, that is on police officers to go about their day to day where they're expected to be perfect in all these different disciplines that frankly take each individually take a lifetime to master. Um, that being said, it clearly like looking at the video, like n it's hard not to have a visceral reaction uh, to what happened, especially like kneeling on someone's neck while they're handcuffed to the ground and pose no threat to you really and you have other cops around you um yeah he could have handcuffed him that's the other thing there was no i mean reason usually for I'm this guy to, to do what he did i feel like through cops and other tv shows and media we're used to seeing people get slammed to the ground if there's anything like really going on um but like once you slam someone to the ground and they seem like pretty out of it and subdued why continue to i oh my god all right i'm just speculating at this point so let me stop speculating um the whole trial thing like dude some of these clips all right part of my ignorance is the fact that it's hard as fuck to find the information okay i'm looking online i'm trying to look up the the videos of That's the trial true. and the trial it's like someone comes out with a news article oh derek chauvin speaks at trial i'm like holy shit the guy's actually saying something and then it's a five minute <laughs> clip of him just saying yeah i talked to my lawyer Yep, I understand this. No, I'm not going to talk. No, I'm not going to say anything. And it's him for five minutes saying that he's not going to say anything. It's like, why are we doing this? Just can you like do this in writing or something? Don't put this clip up. I don't want to see this, dude. I watched click, the whole man. way through. I thought there was going to be something and uh, nothing happened. Yeah. So I just, I mean, we're still in trial, right? There hasn't been a definitive outcome. And uh, has there been? I, I couldn't tell you because these clips, dude, they're baiting me. Like, I, I don't even know what the hell is going yeah, on. I agree. He invoked oh, the Fifth God. Amendment today. Well, it's That's so odd because, news. like, like we, we got to think. So I hate the fact that I have to defend the police at all because I really am not a big fan of the police. But I will say, first of all, we got to think. There, really, there aren't much alternatives to our current system other than maybe having ro some kind of robotic police force. And that could be more d discriminatory in the long run. But it's not only that. People say... Oh, with mental health issues, we shouldn't have cops dealing with the situation. The problem is almost every criminal is mentally ill. It's like that that's that's not not a fact, but that's almost why they're criminals. 
So to say, oh, because they're mentally ill, we can't treat them this way. People that go on killing sprees are mentally ill. Are we not supposed to subdue them? Are we supposed to have some some like community force come and calm them down? Yeah, somehow? but Derek Chauvin wasn't sure on a killing realistic. spree. In this situation, though, it was clear to me the cop was in the wrong. Oh, role. no, de- uh, that definitely generally. counts generally. But in terms of like, again, he wasn't going out of his way and like accosting people. He wasn't being violent towards anyone. If it if it was a drug deal, frankly, so what? You don't deserve to die over a drug deal in a car. Like that's something that like imagine like doing that in high school and like trying to get weed from one of your friends. And then all of a sudden you're thrown on the ground and suffocated until death. Like, why Why are we doing this, dude? The drug laws in this country make no fucking sense. But even, like, I can see, like, dude, there's just there's just way too much um, seriousness. And I get it. Fentanyl and other illicit substances can be very, very serious and can kill people, especially, like, in terms of the quality. But, I mean, I feel like part of that is wouldn't you want to know what drugs you're getting? And part of the reason why people are dying from overdoses is they have no idea what the hell they're taking because it's all in the black market and there's no sort of quality standards to ensure that you're actually getting the drug that you're trying to get. Yeah, just to be clear, I, I 100% agree with you on this case. I'm just speaking generally because the conversation seems mm-hmm. is it's based on this case, but this case has more implications than just this case. People are taking it to extremes, like abolish police and whatnot. I, I just can't, I can't see the logic to get to that point. <clears throat> I just feel like the main thing here is that if Chauvin gets away with all this, like... I feel like he's the face of this, like, police brutality now. Like, in the end of the day, there's a lot of implications if he does get away with it. Like, he's the focal point of racism right now since 2020. Like, he's the face that you think of when you think of racism. And the fact is that with him doing something specifically to harm the civil rights of this person that made this guy die, even if it was the direct cause or the indirect cause, it was some factor in him dying. It's kind of dumb if, like, you don't do anything against the guy. Like, I would be in support of somebody protesting to keep this guy in jail. Like, this dude is, like, everything... This guy is everything wrong with their system. The fact that, like, he's not had been given the news or he's not, like, being thrown... Kept in jail or whatever is, like, a loss for our civil rights and, like, our human rights and our court system altogether. Like, I feel like we need to move towards a system that is better and obviously police brutality is bad and obviously that's not all the cops and whenever you have one cop it creates a bad image for the entire other police force and a lot of these people are doing their jobs properly but overall like this guy has to you know have some repercussions because he wasn't doing a good thing we all see that he wasn't doing a good thing and the fact is that whatever way we want to take it like He's responsible for all the violence that took place over the last three to four months because he's the scapegoat that caused everything to erupt. Like there's obviously other things that caused, you know, all the violence to take place. I don't I don't see an excuse for rioting, though. I don't like. Yeah, I understand being upset. I just can't see tearing down your own community is the answer. It it never it never seems productive to me personally. So I don't I'm not saying. Like the the event definitely caused the outrage and the riots, but not, I can't pin all the riots on the dude. I will say he should be punished greatly, and even if he's not punished, society punished him. He's completely ostracized. Who's gonna want to associate with that dude? How's he gonna get a job? This is not gonna happen. He could uh, become Amish, move off the grid, <laughs> you start think, a new life. You think the Amish would accept him? Well, he can get plastic surgery and move hey, dude, to another country, if, and they won't even know his trouble. It seems oh like Pratik's thought about but... this. 
I feel like there's always a way people can get around all this stuff. And I feel like the problem with Chauvin, people like Chauvin, is that, like, there there is racism that takes place. It's very evident. The fact that if this guy was a white guy and he was being pulled in his neck like that, that wouldn't happen. And the fact is that some of these crimes that people put people in jail for and, like, the crimes that causes people like George Floyd to die are not that big of crimes that need all that stuff that to take place. There are much worse criminals out there that America can't get a hold of, and it's sad. Because if we can't get a hold of it, our criminal system is much better than other countries, and even our police force is bad. So imagine how bad other people's police well, forces are. So it's like... It's like the IRS. They take the easy pickings. Like, they take people they know aren't going to be able to defend themselves. And that's how the justice system works. That's how the private prison system works and still operates. But I will say, as far as our legal system goes, like, and the problem with this whole case is there might be reasonable doubt. Again, no judgment value. There might be reasonable doubt. In our court system, if there's reasonable doubt, you cannot be convicted for the crime. That's what I'm afraid of. Because whatever we've seen... We're going to have way, way worse if this dude's not convicted. Yeah, we're going to see more protests. I think, (laughs) yeah, that's number one. But two, no, seriously, I think that's a great point. Obviously, I think all three of us on here believe that there should be that that benchmark to say you have to prove beyond reasonable doubt that this occurred as a result of that person's actions. Like that, like witnesses, like even, even if someone like were to go, like stab me in the arm tomorrow and like just stand there and be like, yeah, take my face. Here's all my information. Let's go to court tomorrow. Let's hammer this out. Like, even if that happens, I feel like you would still need to get, you know, prove beyond reasonable. That, yeah. That's the guy who stabbed me right in the arm. Look at him. What do you have to say for I yourself? Mean, He's like, Oh, five minutes of, I actually don't want to say anything, yeah. but I think part the bigger thing. And that was, Oh God, that was a bad tirade. But The biggest thing to me, quite frankly, is it parallels a lot of just the lack of faith and declining trust of the American people in major institutions. And policing is a a major institution in this country and law enforcement in general. And if we don't have as much trust in it, and especially because, oh my God, because it has the overlap with the state. If the state cannot prosecute this case correctly, and nothing happens as a result of this one people are going to be pissed not only at law enforcement but also at the state and at everyone else because you just it's part of it i mean granted not not all the institutions are just like oh group up all the institutions together and there's some super score they all get for trust but i think it really would show if nothing happened to this guy that all this stuff about people saying this is structural racism across the board in every area of government if nothing happens here that's kind of giving them some um some credence yeah, some, some credibility some to say yeah look at this and, they're all and that's all the problem cahoots. is that if people think that and they automatically assume that then it's all about what people think if people were all about following the laws and making sure everything was done properly, then we would have never even been in this situation in the first place. We wouldn't have seen any of these protests or riots. Obviously, there were certain protesters and rioters that went overboard and did a lot more damage than other protesters and rioters which were peaceful. But you can't tell about any of that. And sometimes even the people that are violent people are the ones that are going to take advantage of that and you know do stuff to benefit themselves where they can like maybe go rob some stores and make some money out of it so like there's all kinds of things that can take place and i just feel like this by not allowing this guy to be like you know 
you know, thrown in jail or something, you're kind of giving them ammunition to just continue on the same tirade that was going on beforehand. But now it's more justified because, as Nick said, it just means that there's structural racism. And isn't this in the same... Sorry, this may be a little bit of an aside, but is this the same district where just a couple days ago... Ten miles a away. Cop mistaken, a, a cop mistakenly pulled his gun on someone instead of a taser it was and shot her. him? It was a woman. She was actually a veteran. Oh, it was a woman? A female veteran police officer thought she had a taser and had a gun. That's, I mean, it almost, it's almost like she's never fired a gun before because they're not similar. Like, they're just... I mean, she must have, not must have had an adrenaline dump, like... So much blood mm-hmm. pumping through her. Maybe she hasn't been in too many of those situations and freaked out and shot. The I dude. think we need to take um, action against a, that, Minnesota that, police. That, it was that. That was, but that was clearly an accident <laughs> because you could see when she actually did it. She said, "Oh shit, I shot him!" Like it was clear she didn't mean to do it. That doesn't justify it, and she should still be punished. But it wasn't a racist incident. I don't believe. I think it was more of just police. Uh, I don't know, a police mishap. Like, that's the problem with police. You're in a life and death situation every day you're on that job. And it's becoming more and more prevalent the reasons why people may not want to become cops. Maybe why we don't have good people in the police forces. Because there are some dire consequences if you make any mistake. And it sucks because we need to have people in that position. But we also need them to not be killing the very citizens they're supposed to be protecting. Totally. No, 100%. I think that's a great point to end on. Um, but even though that's the case, dude, what are they doing over there? This isn't New York. This isn't Chicago. I get it. You're not a major city. You don't have the, like all these tens of millions of dollars to dedicate towards training. How do you have so many like, mess ups in Minnesota? So I, I, like so I, I've actually, I've actually known someone from Minnesota that said there may be some actual racism over there. Like the, there, maybe it's just the people are so segregated already that it, hmm. it, it maybe there is some racism or. I don't know. This is this issue is way over my favorite Democratic politician. I could talk all day, but what do I know? Andy Klobuchar. <laughs> oh my god, dude! How are you on Klobuchar? <laughs> Didn't she throw a salad fork or something at her staff and like get this I out like of here? I like your policies, you, though. You, she you she on, has good policies. She was the most incremental Democratic politician that they had in that election. And other than Biden, but no one knew what Biden wanted to do. So he was kind of an outlier. That's how he won. But like with Amy Klobuchar, I feel like she was probably the best candidate that we've had run for president in a very long time based on what her policies were. Because she wasn't extreme on anything. Like all these extreme people. She could have been America's mom. And obviously like extremism to some extent has its benefits. Like you have policies. If you're like, I want something to happen now, then you want it gong ho. You don't want just like, you know, let's let's like diddle daddle. Let's, you know, play by the books. And that's the best way to do it. That's the right way to do it. But people don't think like that. We like what we like and we go at it and find the person that's the most extreme about it. That's how we have people like Ted well, Cruz and Bernie easy, Sanders that are number easy to two be, in the primaries. Dude, it's easy to be a revolutionary because you never actually get your goal. And you can always say, if I had that and then. But they never actually achieve it because it's just so outlandish and ridiculous. That's why you need... In politics, you need incrementalists because that's simply how government works. It doesn't work like private institutions. You need people willing to work within the system to make it slightly better over long periods of time. And people just want to see dramatic change, which, you know, you can push for all you want. But it, it's hard to account for all the 
extern externalities of the plans you're going to implement. It's hard to account for every variable. You can't see them all. And when in practice, most of the time, the theories don't end up working the way you and think they would. And if people really wanted to, you know, don't trash you? all over me, it's just funny that my two favorite candidates were Jeb Bush and Amy Klobuchar. But <laughs> that's a whole total side story. To the enthusiasm of a wet mop. Could have won over yep. Jeb Bush any yep. day of the week. Oh my hey, gosh! But Jeb Bush man. was the most qualified poor, poor candidate running for president. He had the most, um, you know, different experiences before he would have been president. Oh my! God. He so was the was governor Hillary, of but Florida. Who cares? <laughs> who cares, dude? My boy Jeb's coming back, twenty twenty four. Jeb and Jeb Bush got <laughs> one voter for Deep Patel. <laughs> it's a fact. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. Other than that, I think. Um, that's all we have for today. So thank you guys for listening to us. Um, and make sure that if you have any issues, comments or questions and want to be, you know, discussed on the show, please feel free to text us or contact us in any which way possible. And we'll definitely bring you on the show. But other than that, and Kyle, take it away. And if you don't know us, you just email backofthemob at gmail.com. Uh, I'll check that once a week. If you do have any comments or interesting discussion points, I'd be happy to introduce them to us and we can discuss them. So I'd be happy to get you guys more engaged in the conversation. Um, but overall, thank you everyone for tuning in. Nick, any final thoughts? Not at all. What a treat to be back on the show. Wonderful talking with both of you again. Looking forward to the next episode. Yes. Till next week, everyone. Take care.